This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. There are few things in life as important as the food we eat, but making sure that we guard the genes in our crops for the future is just as important. They do go back in time, so we've got representatives of early crops from the UK, wheat, barley and oats from different regions across the UK, as well as other parts of the world. Plus, we take a look at some of the intellectual property issues surrounding our food, learn Squid's surprising secret, and our gene of the month might be a mare. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast for April 2015 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Feeding the world's growing population is a big challenge and it's important that we take care of the varieties of crops that are grown as food. But at the same time, we also need to find varieties that can withstand new challenges, such as pests and climate change. I spoke to Mike Ambrose, manager of the Germplasm Resources Unit at the John Innes Centre in Norwich, which is basically a seed bank packed full of all kinds of crops, to find out how resources like this could help keep food on the table in the future. My role at the John Innes Centre is to manage the Germplasm Resources Unit, which is a seed bank in other words. And these represent the collective agricultural history and research history of uh, arable crops in the UK, primarily cereals and legumes. So these are large collections of seed which have been amassed to underpin principally research and breeding. They do go back in time, so we've got representatives of of early crops from the UK, wheat, barley and oats from different regions across the UK as well as other parts of the world. Now when I look at say a field of wheat or a field of barley or something it looks pretty much to me like any other field of barley but presumably there are differences in say different species or strains of these these crops and they're genetically different. How do you go about kind of collecting and preserving some of that diversity? Well, for cereal crops, it's fortunate that they're mostly inbreeding. So if you if you get hold of a variety and you keep it from outcrossing, you can keep it as a genetically fixed uh, line. So if you just grow it in one field and you harvest those and plant them again and keep going, you'll just get that that particular genetic crop. Yes, you'll get that crop. Now, the crop isn't is a hundred percent inbred. There's still a little bit of what they call residual variation there but basically it will conform to the description of that type. We can actually go back through some of the early descriptions, colour colour etchings of cereals from the late 1800s and match them against the same varieties we have today and they're absolutely spot on. So I could be eating a loaf of bread made with exactly the same kind of wheat, genetically the same as could have been grown a hundred years ago? Pretty much, yes. And what about some of the more wonderful things like the, the heritage vegetables? We hear all about these kind of strange vegetables that are coming out and, and turning up in our shops or in, in farmers' markets. Are there similar things for cereal crops? There are. They're not so generally well known, um, but it's exactly the same thing. People have maintained these old forms purely out of interest. And in some cases, certainly in the cereals, they had to earn their keep. So when we talk about heritage material still being used, it's for, an, it's for a purpose. So you've got particular crops of barley or oats or even wheat that are grown for um, purposes. So for instance, in Scotland, certain types of barley are well better adapted for growing under the 
the windy, wet conditions there than recommended varieties today. And in the UK, in um, the southwest of England and east, east of England, you've got to think about all the thatching materials, all the straw that's used, the long-strawed wheats are the old-fashioned types that are, that are grown, and they're grown specifically by some farmers um, that have, and some of them have accessed them from our collections for their long straw to, to maintain the heritage of thatching um, buildings. Say you did decide that you wanted to take one of these, these stored seeds and get it going again. You're like, yep, I think we need this crop. How much would you need and how long would it take to get that, say, so a number of farmers could, could be sowing it? We only keep relatively small samples, given that we've got over 45,000 different lines. The amount of any one of them is uh, relatively modest. But you can, over um, two or three generations of multiplication, build up to a reasonable amount of seed. So we can fast track it. There are ways if we really need to, if something really important is discovered in a line, it can be put, put through two to three generations a year, depending on whether it's a, um, a winter or spring type. We can accelerate that process and, uh, and get the seed uh, multiplied up at a faster rate. And from a research perspective, how do you go about discovering what's, what's in these seeds, what's useful in these p different genetic lines that you've got? There are different ways. Uh, you may you may be focusing on um, specific diseases, so you might put it into um, infected soils or spray it with particular diseases to see whether it has any immunity. But you can also um, look at it genetically. So, for instance, if you know if you've got a particular disease resistance gene that has been sequenced with the new technologies, you could look for variants in that sequence by just taking a piece of the leaf of DNA, extracting the DNA, and searching for variants of it. That's called ecotilling. And that's a very powerful new technique. So, for instance, if we have DNA resources of our collections, you can come along to it and probe for that allelic variation and within a few weeks get an answer which would have taken many years to establish by growing everything up and exposing it over its full cycle. One of the hot topics at the moment is talking about things like food security and the changing climate and the environment. How do you see the role of what you guys do here in basically enabling us to have food for the future? Well the collections are incredibly important in that arena. These resources are the first port of call in many instances for research and breeders to look for those adaptive traits to cope with climate change and other other stresses that, that are imminent and threatening. Do you have a favourite in there? Do you have a favourite variety that you look at and go, that, that is a nice barley? Favourites, they, they come and go. There are. I mean, the, the collections are full of stories, full of each individual line has its own story. And it's a question of which ones are current at the moment. And uh, one that's playing out is a land race of barley, a UK um, barley land race called Chevalier, which has been knocking around since the 1830s. And when barley um, really began to become improved in the latter part of the 1800s, there was a sort of line drawn under the old material. Oh, it wasn't well adapted. It was consigned to, to the history books. But we recently there are, there are researchers here that have been looking into these old forms that are well adapted to growing in the UK. They may not have the disease resistance. And lo and behold, um, that particular line has, has two characteristics which have brought it right into the focus. The first is that it has um, some novel malting features, so in the malting process for beer, but 
also is the fact that it has a new form of disease resistance to its uh, uh, disease called Fusarium head blight, which is increasingly a problem in the UK. So that material has been fast-tracked. So an old, old line is having a really renaissance. It does sound like a fantastic resource that you've got with this seed bank. I mean, how can you get people to, to know about it? Is there any way that the, the public can maybe get hold of some of these, and, these seeds and, and try them out? Well, we do put on growing demonstrations, not just at John Innes, but um, a few other events, and I go and give talks. But uh, we have, over the last few years, been um, supplying seed to um, inner-city schools programmes. It's easy for people to get hold of vegetable seeds from your you know, your um, garden centre, but how do you get hold of agricultural seed? Not so easy. So we've put ourselves in the marketplace for providing samples of seeds for um, teachers to be able to grow out small plots of wheat or barley or whatever else we have so that the children get to see what the crop, what it looks like when it's growing, to get to harvest it, get to, to um, process it and to eat it in the end. The more people that understand these processes and the more that use the collections, it's for the better. They're there to be used. That was Mike Ambrose from the John Innes Centre in Norwich. Our genes can tell us a lot about where we've come from. Now, a major new study published in the journal Nature has used genetic analysis to look at the ancestry of British people, showing that different parts of the UK seem to harbour their own distinctive genetic flavour and revealing where some of these groups might have come from. Study researcher Garrett Hellenthal from UCL told me more about the work. The aim of this study was to uh, infer the genetic history of the UK. And so what we did is we sampled some 2,000 individuals from across the United Kingdom. Uh, and these individuals were selected in a very particular way. Um, there was a requirement that for each individual, all four of their grandparents had to be born within 80 kilometers of one another. So trying to get individuals that have been living in a region for a while so we can get a snapshot of older history and avoid recent migration. And the aim of the study, so two major things that we did, one was to see if we can cluster individuals uh, based solely on looking at their genetics and seeing if, for example, individuals that were sampled from one part of the United Kingdom, uh, are they more similar to each other uh, than they are to individuals sampled from another part of the United Kingdom? And how does this correlate with kind of known boundaries and, and history? Uh, the second thing was to take the DNA of these same individuals and compare them to some 6,000 individuals from across continental Europe uh, and identify if different parts of the UK share matching DNA patterns with different parts of Europe. And if so, uh, do those correlate with known migrations from Europe? And of all the migrations uh, from Europe into the UK, which have kind of had the biggest genetic impact on the people of the UK today? Tell me some stories. Tell me some stories about us. What have you found? Just looking at the UK itself, there were some fascinating stories just by comparing the UK of uh, uh, the DNA of individuals in the UK to each other. There was kind of a striking correlation, it turns out, with genetics and geography to the point with um, we can tell whether an individual came from Cornwall, which is in the southwest of England uh, versus whether they were sampled from one county over in Devon. Uh, genetically, we can tell them apart, which is quite surprising because those geographically, those are quite nearby regions. Uh, and in fact, the difference between the two, the groups seem to um, be separated largely along modern day county borders, which is another sort of interesting finding. But then at the same time, while you have these kind of very uh, tight regional clustering across the United Kingdom, which hadn't been shown before, um, there's some parts of the UK, and for example, uh, central, south and eastern England, uh, individuals sampled from across a very large swath of those areas all were genetically very homogeneous. We couldn't really tell them apart, uh, suggesting that there had been quite a bit of movement and intermixing along 
those regions. And so then when we tried to take the DNA of these individuals and compare them to Europe to learn about why we're observing these sorts of pockets of genetics across the United Kingdom, we found that um, one of the bigger stories in, in UK history appears to be uh, the Anglo-Saxon migrations. So UK has a very storied history, lots of migrations. Um, for example, the Romans occupied big parts of England uh, for about 400 years until about the fifth century. And yet, despite that, they've built uh, lots of walls and uh, baths and other things that you can see across England today. But in spite of that, there seems to be very little genetic impact at all related to the Roman Empire, as far as we can tell. They didn't fancy us, basically. I guess, that yeah, they didn't migrate here in large numbers. It's believed that they didn't really migrate here in large numbers. Perhaps it was, it was difficult to convince people to leave the Mediterranean and come up, uh, come up to the UK. In contrast to that, after the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, that kick-started what were known as the Anglo-Saxon migrations, which were around the 5th and 6th uh, centuries. And for those migrations, they, there was large-scale migrations from places in modern-day Denmark and northern, northwest Germany who settled into uh, a big area within um, southeast England. And it was unknown amongst archaeologists or debated amongst archaeologists and historians as to whether the Anglo-Saxons completely displaced the people that were there so that if you looked at an Englishman today, basically they'd be entirely Anglo-Saxon in heritage, or whether they intermixed with the inhabitants that were there. And so what our study threw up was that they appear to have intermixed. If you look at an Englishman today, on average in these regions, uh, this area of southeast England, they have about 10 to 40 percent of their DNA that seems to trace to these Anglo-Saxon migrations. And the rest seems to be similar to uh, other areas of the UK, uh, which we think of as the kind of pre-Saxon inhabitants. One of the other people we know came to the UK is the Vikings. Tell me if you found any evidence of, of Viking blood in our, in our history. Uh, yes, we did in some parts. So uh, there were Norwegian uh, Viking invasions and migrations that came to uh, Scotland in about the 9th century. Orkney Island, which, so, which is an island off the north part of Scotland, individuals there seem to have about 25% of their DNA uh, matches to individuals from modern-day Norway, suggesting a link that's most likely related to those, those conquests. In fact, Norway annexed Orkney uh, for about 500 years, uh, about till 1470 or so, I think. Out of all the parts of the country that you looked at, which are the ones that seem to have been most isolated and kept themselves to themselves over the years? The Welsh appear to be a group that seems to have been less impacted by these recent events, these recent Anglo-Saxon and Norwegian Viking migrations. They perhaps look the most similar to what we might think of as the original inhabitants or the pre-Saxon inhabitants. So they seem to have been quite successful at um, warding off these different invading uh, factions for whatever reason, probably geographically for, for one thing. But... And not mating with them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that's the key, yes. Not intermixing, as they say, with these, uh, these invading groups, yes. So the differences that you're finding between people from different regions, do they mean anything? Does this mean that people in Cornwall have, like, funny-shaped heads or something like that? So as far as we know, the vast majority of any of the DNA that we looked at um, is neutral, meaning it doesn't encode or affect any sort of physical traits or characteristics. What it most likely reflects is the fact that these two groups, for example, if you consider uh, neighboring counties that appear to be genetically distinct, such as Cornwall and Devon, as we see in this study, um, it seems to reflect that they've probably been somewhat isolated from one another, meaning they haven't um, intermixed relatively recently. And what that means is if you're isolated, so if this is a signature that you've been isolated, you might start to develop your own cultural traits. But it doesn't mean in any way that the genetics are driving those cultural differences. If anything, it's just sort of telling us that they appear to be isolated, and hence it's not surprising that they have their own minor cultural differences. There's quite a lot in the news about immigration coming into the British Isles. Do you feel that when you look at the genetic history of the people who live here, that 
This has been going on for many, many, many years. Yeah, that's right. One of the things that I've found in my studies is that every group appears to be mixtures of other groups. So we basically all descend from these sort of past intermixing events. Human populations, clearly, once we expanded across the globe, we didn't just stay put. We, we went back out again and intermixed. And so you see these signals everywhere. It's always, it's a constant interaction amongst different groups. And that's uh, still continuing today and uh, will for a very long time. That was Garrett Hellenthal from UCL, and now it's time for a few more of this month's genetics news stories. US researchers have developed a more efficient, smaller tool for genetic engineering, effectively a tiny pair of molecular scissors that can snip DNA in specific places, publishing their work in the journal Nature. Called Cas9, it's based on a recently developed system known as CRISPR, which was first found in bacteria, but has since been used to selectively alter DNA in all sorts of organisms. One problem with CRISPR is that the components are relatively large in molecular terms, making it tricky to package it all into the kind of viral vectors that might be used to deliver gene editing technology into human patients to treat diseases caused by faulty genes. The current CRISPR system works using the Cas9 gene from bacteria called Streptococcus pyogenes. After sifting through around 600 different bacterial species, the researchers found that the technique also works with a Cas9 gene taken from the bacteria Staphylococcus aureus, which is about 25% smaller than the Streptococcus version. For now, genetic engineering using CRISPR and Cas9 is still at a highly experimental stage, but there are hopes that in the future, as long as it's safe, it could be a way of developing new treatments for people affected by genetic diseases. Scientists have made a surprising discovery about squid, according to a new paper in the journal eLife. When genes are read, cells copy the information encoded in DNA to produce messages called RNA. This RNA is then used as the instructions to create proteins, the building blocks of the cell. For a long time, it was thought that RNA was a faithful copy of the DNA template, but it's now known that some of the letters in the RNA messages can be changed, a process known as RNA editing. There are examples of editing in many organisms, including humans, worms and fruit flies, but it's not thought to be a hugely widespread phenomenon. Now researchers in Puerto Rico have discovered that squid edit their RNA on a massive scale, with around 60% of their RNA being edited in the brain, corresponding to an incredible 57,000 sites that differ from the original DNA, compared to around 100 known sites in humans and 600 in fruit flies. The scientists think that this might create more diversity in the proteins that are in the squid brain, helping the animals to quickly adapt to the changes in their environment, such as alterations in temperature. And if you'd like to find out more about any of those stories, the references are all on our website. That's nakedscientist.com slash genetics. If you want to get more great science in your ears, why not give the Naked Scientist podcast a listen? Each week, the team talk directly to scientists around the world to bring you the latest science news. And there's an in-depth look at some of the key areas that are getting people talking, including the issue of whether cannabis causes schizophrenia and new evidence that the bugs in your guts are controlling your behaviour. That's the Naked Scientist podcast at nakedscientist.com slash podcast or look it up on iTunes. You're listening to the Naked Genetics Podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be meeting our mayoral gene of the month, but first it's time for an often overlooked topic in genetics, the role of intellectual property, or IP. But while it's easy to see how trademarks and patents might apply to processed foods and brands, it's harder to understand the wider IP issues at stake around the food we eat. 
To find out more, and particularly how IP is relevant to agriculture and our food, I met up with Dr Dominic Berry, a researcher from the Centre for History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Leeds. We met at a bustling market in London, but before we moved indoors away from the noise, we took a look at some of the delicious-looking fruit and veg on the stalls. I wanted to know if people realise that there's intellectual property locked up in these humble carrots and lettuces. Uh, they might not seem that way, and it might seem a bit bizarre to if you next time you go out shopping to start looking at your fruit and veg in these sorts of terms. But basically when you're looking at a whole bunch of fruit and veg, you're really looking at a whole series of different kinds of intellectual property claims. So maybe you know a particularly famous uh, brand, and that brand will be protected by trademarks, and in some cases copyright, that kind of thing. Or the, the, the fruit and veg themselves could be subject to certain intellectual property regulations that require that you trace where the varieties have been produced or who's grown them, all these kinds of things. We've seen some of the kinds of foods that intellectual property applies to, so we're going to go and have a chat about what this actually means and should, should people own these fruit and veg? Sounds good. When we're thinking about intellectual property on foods, on crops, do we just mean patents? What do we mean by intellectual property? Well, it, it doesn't necessarily just mean patents. So there's lots of different kinds of intellectual property that might or might not apply to, to certain kinds of foods. So the, the most obvious one is trademarks. And obviously the brands that companies make around their food products matter a great deal to them and they protect them through things like trademarking. And then of course patenting that might apply to a particular technique that goes into the, the, the fruit or veg involved or the, whatever the food product is. But the really interesting thing about IP is that you don't have to think about it in just these very narrow, somewhat legalistic and regulatory terms. So you can have a much broader conception of intellectual property, trying to, to broaden our conception of what intellectual property means. And that means going well beyond the kinds of patenting and trademark and copyright, this kind of things. IP is a far more diffuse and uh, it touches on virtually every aspect of not only the world in which we live as consumers uh, of food, or as scientists who are trying to work on various different biomaterials. And then we add in things like corporations, companies. There was a big court case in the US about Myriad Genetics basically saying they owned, if not the BRCA2 gene, but the tests that were specifically looking for the specific gene faults. And that caused a lot of consternation because people felt that maybe this kind of idea isn't something that should be owned in this way. Yes, uh, and that's a particularly interesting case uh, because it seems to be going back and forth. So we just had a great big decision in the States recently where that's been de deemed that it doesn't count, that it can't be patented. Whereas in Australia, equally recently, we've had the reverse decision. It's more interesting to look at these cases as, as providing sort of the outer limits as to what counts as intellectual property. But the project that I'm working on is trying to break free of these very narrow kinds of concerns. So people talk a lot of time about Monsanto and these kind of things as well, alongside the Myriad case. And these are important and very, very decisive uh, moments in, in terms of science and, and our, our general history. But nevertheless, they can be somewhat distracting, precisely because of, of how unique they are. And that thing called intellectual property actually permeates far wider. You've mentioned Monsanto, and that's something I want to talk about a little bit, is that often we hear about uh, genetically modified technology, the idea of patenting genes, patenting specific strains of fruit and vegetables that have been developed in the lab. Do you think that focusing particularly on GM foods in this way is, is helpful and helps to further our discussions and understanding of agriculture today? There's a lot of stuff on Facebook about, you know, Monsanto, evil, GM is evil. The case of Monsanto becomes uh, a lot less impressive and uh, demands much less attention 
once you start understanding precisely how long people have been attempting to protect their intellectual property in, in the foods that we eat. Professional breeders have existed for a very long time. If we're talking about them in, com in the commercial sense of that is their primary function as being the provider of innovation in plant sciences, then that, that's kind of, this is kind of a, a late 18th, 19th century phenomenon. And these are people who mattered for scientists immediately because they had such uh, not just control to access to resources, but also uh, knowledge. Uh, so these breeders were of importance for people like Charles Darwin, who I understand is someone that a lot of your listeners might be interested in. Uh, breeders mattered fundamentally to the way in which Darwin went about doing his research and the way in which he came to his eventual theories. The discussion we've had, many people may for a start not even understand that these kind of things are at work in the food that we eat. When we go to the supermarket, you just pick up a carrot, a banana, a loaf of bread. What do you want the public to understand more about some of these issues that do underpin our food, the food that we eat every day? The first thing that I'd want them to be, to, to be a lot more aware of is that IP doesn't just matter for the GM cases, uh, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, IP is something that matters for all of us at every level of society, whether we're, we're working in science or not. All of us, to some extent, will feel either as part of our work or even amongst your friendship group. Okay, intellectual property is something that that's diffuse. You can maybe feel like if you introduce uh, a bit of new knowledge to, you, to your friends, favorite uh, band or my favorite gene, <laughs> that kind of thing, or or, or, or like you, you say to some, you explain to somebody uh, some fact about history, right? And the next week you see them in the pub and you overhear them telling somebody else that same fact. You might sort of you feel somewhat like something's that's been my, nicked my from joke. you, yeah. yeah. And, and without proper citation, then perhaps this is that this isn't quite right. And those problems get magnified massively when you start talking about science and scientists, in which the whole process of how credit is uh, shared out between people and the way in which different forms of labour are more or less appreciated or not. These are the ways in which intellectual property manifests for all of us. And where do you think the future is? Do you think things are going to get more constrained and people are going to want to own a share of more and more of it and make more and more money? Or do you think things are going to open up? You know, life is for everyone, food is for everyone, genes are for everyone. From a historical perspective, we're living in really, really interesting times because uh, in some ways we see a very some a strengthening of intellectual property all the way down to people protecting the kinds of databases that they use in, and, and collecting together their scientific data. Those kinds of things are already being integrated into intellectual property protection. But in lots of other ways we're seeing regulators and uh, government bodies becoming all the more sophisticated as to what the way in which an intellectual property regime might work. So for instance, as part of the project that I'm currently working on, is uh, I'm working with the Organic Research Centre. And here we have uh, an example of plant breeders producing varieties that up until around March last year were, would have been illegal for them to, to even commercialise or sell, simply because these are varieties that do not meet the minimum standards for intellectual property protection. And in order to be able to be granted a, a right over your plant variety and therefore make it legal and actually able to sell, you have to pass certain conditions. Like it has to be new enough, exciting enough? That kind of, yes, exactly. Distinctness, uniformity and stability. Those are the, the three primary regulatory requirements that a variety has to meet in order for it to become legal and saleable. Now, the varieties that the people at the ORC are wanting to release in the next few years, these are called population varieties. And the point of them is that they are not distinct, uniform and stable. That's the very point of them. 
They're kind of wobbly and ugly and a bit scruffy around the edges. Yeah, they are capable of greater adaptability to environmental changes. And this is obviously something that makes them particularly interesting at, at this time, what with climate change. The big thing with trying to put any kind of legal framework on science, particularly on biology and genetics, is that you don't want to suppress research. You want to actually encourage people to to find ways of making life better. And presumably IP law can help that and can also hinder that too. Absolutely. So innovation can happen in all sorts of places in all sorts of ways. Innovation doesn't just have to happen with those kinds of things that are very easily understood on the terms of contemporary intellectual property law. So this is why we need people uh, working on the, the scientific and public policy side of things that can put the case that there is there's more to the, the natural world than that which is protectable by IP law. That was Dominic Berry from the University of Leeds and you can find out more about his research project Cultivating Innovation looking at issues around IP and genetics at cultivatinginnovation.org. And finally it's our gene of the month and this time it's Boris. Not named after the floppy-haired mayor of London, Boris stands for Brother of Regulator of Imprinted Sites. If that's a bit of a mouthful, it's more usually known as CTCFL, short for CTCF-like, because it's very similar to a gene called, yep, you guessed it, CTCF. CTCF itself is involved in sticking to certain bits of DNA near genes that are active or switched off, depending on whether they were inherited from mum or dad, known as imprinted genes. First discovered in 2002, Boris is usually only switched on in the cells in the testes that will become sperm in males, and it's thought to play a part in setting up the imprints that come from dad. But recent research has shown that Boris is also active in many different types of cancer, potentially causing changes in the pattern of genes that are switched on and off in tumours and driving the disease. That's all for now. I'll be back next month reporting back from the Genetic Society Spring Meeting up in Edinburgh on breeding for bacon, beer and biofuels. There are still places available, so if you'd like to go, you can sign up at genetics.org.uk. If you've got any questions or feedback, you can email me, genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetic Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes. Genetics.